Welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. We're two friends who met in the mental health field and just so happen to love talking. We know slightly more than the average person about psychology, but we are by no means experts on these cases we are about to present. Yep, so all opinions expressed on the show are ours and ours alone. We'll always give out our sources and shout out and include article links in our podcast description. All right. So why pink collar? Um, So like a lot of people, I've listened to a ton of true crime podcasts. I got started with Serial, moved on to, you know, S-Town, Crime Junkies, all those great true crime podcasts. And something I noticed was that a lot of these cases focus on crimes committed by men. So what we wanted to do was focus exclusively on crimes committed by women. So what exactly is pink-collar crime? The term was actually coined by Dr. Kathleen Daly to describe embezzlement crimes committed by women. We aim to take pink-collar crime one step further, focusing on any and all crimes committed by women. So each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss the details, the motives, similarities, and differences, etc., if you like our show, tell your friends, please subscribe and give us a five star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on all social media platforms at pinkcolor underscore pod. So Natalie, we are finally doing it. We are starting a podcast. I know. I can't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Starting a podcast is what you do when you're having a quarter life crisis, but you're too ugly to apply for The Bachelor. (laughs) And at 25 and 26, we might be too old already anyway. Yeah, we're probably pretty geriatric for in bachelor years. (laughs) Which is depressing, you know, but hey, it is what it is. Um, along those lines, you know, have you ever heard this the saying, he's got a face for radio? <laughs> That's like us, but for yeah, podcasts. Basically. <laughs> just kidding. We're not ugly. We're supermodels. You can see us. So. <laughs> You'll just never know. <laughs> You'll never know. But in all seriousness, uh, we're both interested in criminology and victimology. Um, like I was saying before, loved serial um i also am a huge fan of true crime novels like john douglas robert wrestler go mindhunter did you ever watch you watched mindhunter right natalie yes i love mindhunter yeah oh my god so good <laughs> second season not so great but the first one was fantastic the first season was really good um the yeah book? definitely Oh, so good. Chef's kiss. Anyway, um, so back to a little bit more about us. So we we met working in the mental health field. Um, We met while we were both in Colorado. I eventually moved to upstate New York, then moved to Boston. But Natalie and I met when I was a wee grad student, and she was the coolest. You would always buy me pizza when I was like (laughs) starving because I had literally $3 in my bank account. Um, Gotta support your friends. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Um, And you're so awesome, you're so funny. And we were 
actually talking on your birthday just about a month, a little over, no, a little under a month ago. And we were like, we should start a podcast. And you were like, yeah, let's do it. And I had this idea of um, women only crimes. So here we are. We're doing it. Yeah. And that's how Pink Collar was born. (laughs) It's exciting stuff, man. Yes. Um, Anyway, so today I'll be covering the case of Jill Beloy, an infamous black widow. And I'll be covering the case of Kelly Cochran. Um, These two cases are about love, marriage, and things going horribly wrong. All right, I'll be kicking things off. My sources for my story include Murderpedia, the LA Times, Crime Museum, and Radford University. Um, so Jill Beloy was born in Louisiana in either 1943 or 1944. The actual date is unknown. Uh, in fact, Jill would often lie about when she was born, claiming to be born in the mid to late 1950s, a little bit different than, uh, 1943. She had what was described as the typical American childhood, and then Jill decided to move in with her grandparents in Indiana at the age of 15. There was pretty limited information on her childhood besides the fact that it was quote-unquote normal, so it's unclear if her child was as normal as it was described. So when she was 17, Jill dropped out of high school to marry Larry Einhen. Larry was an apprentice to a bricklayer in the town of Wabash, Indiana. Indiana. Now, throughout her life, Jill was married 11 times to 11 men. It might get a little bit confusing. I didn't end up including every single marriage attempt she had just because there were so many. Um, So Jill divorced Larry after one year of marriage and took all the money, which was a little over $2,000 in today's money out of their joint bank account. So Jill returned to Louisiana and completed her high school degree. She later enrolled in the Northwestern state of Louisiana where she met Stephen Moore. They married in 1964 and had a child before separating about a year later. So one night while out on the town in the French Quarter of New Orleans, Jill met William Clark Coy. They later married and William adopted her son from her previous marriage and they had two more children of their own. William was a wealthy businessman, which is probably one of the reasons Jill was attracted to him in the first place. Um, William was also frequently away on business trips, and Jill saw this as the perfect opportunity to engage in affairs with many, many men. William grew frustrated with Jill, and Jill eventually filed for divorce in 1972. Not even a month later, Jill reported that William was murdered, and she checked herself into a psychiatric hospital immediately after um, to avoid being questioned by the police. Seems a bit strange to me that she could just get away. (laughs) Is it confirmed that that's why she checked herself into the hospital? Yes. So she, that's, you know, what I saw in the sources is that it was to avoid being questioned by the police. I don't know if police I mean, back in the day weren't allowed to go into the psychiatric hospital. Well, that in and of itself is pretty uh, sketchy to me, but I'm no expert. <laughs> but, you know, it looks like this was her first murder, you know, and especially being a young white woman back in the day who was wealthy, maybe she kind of slid under the radar and avoided being questioned or she just wasn't 
you know, suspected by the police. Um, yeah. So it seems a little fishy now that she was just able to get away with it. But either way, after she left the psychiatric hospital, she moved to California. She convinced a wealthy man in his 90s to adopt her. <laughs> and so he passed away and she gained a significant portion of his estate. Let's go back and talk about the adoption. <laughs> yes, the adoption. Do we know was this a legal adoption? No, because okay. how could that be illegal? You cannot I don't legally know. adopt an adult. I mean, I don't know, but if it, I mean, if this is possible, I would like to look into this, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Maybe she just didn't feel like actually getting married to him and was able to convince him to write her into his will without yeah. having I'd to do that. To know, I'd love to know more about like the details of this, like arrangement you know but i i would love a 90 year old man to adopt me and <laughs> give me all his money and that's fine that's fine <laughs> we are strong independent women rachel <laughs> i know but i i got those student loans man that, <laughs> if someone wants to cover them that's fine and if I it's a, an adoption you know that's a little less questionable than getting married to a 90 year old and i don't think my boyfriend would be okay with that either but <laughs> here we are um so this man passed away, left a significant portion of his estate to her. She next married Donald Charles Brody, a U.S. Marine uh, Corps major, and they divorced after two years of marriage. So after this divorce, Jill married Louis D. DeRosa, who was actually her lawyer following the death of William uh, Clark Coy. So she. So is this like marriage number five so far? I kind of lost track already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like that's like four or five, and so it was. It was her lawyer. So she huh. was married to this guy, murdered him, and then married someone else, and then got married to the lawyer. And we don't know how much the lawyer knew about the murder. Um, he obviously defended her, so I don't know if he was kind of on board with her uh, doing this and ignored the fact that she had killed someone or if she had manipulated him to the point where he had no idea what happened and just felt really bad for her. But um, their marriage was really rocky. They separated multiple times. And during one of those separations, Jill married Eldon Metzger. She then divorced DeRosa in Haiti. Not legal. So she traveled to Haiti okay. <laughs> to divorce him. But the divorce wasn't legal. It didn't, the divorce didn't happen in America. So it didn't count. <laughs> yeah. I also just, why? Not sure. Of all places, of all places to go, not that Haiti's not a great choice, but why? <laughs> you right. know? And Natalie is, is Haitian, so that's why she <laughs> is saying that. <laughs> um, yeah. But you would think, just, you know, if, if your end goal was to go to a different country to secure a divorce, why not Canada? Why not Mexico? You know, somewhere that you don't necessarily have to fly over any oceans or large bodies but of also, land. But isn't also, it, isn't it easier to just go to the courthouse down the street? Well, that's what she did, eventually. Okay. So, in 1985, she eventually legally divorced him. She was on to husband seven at that point, Carl Steely, and she married him in 1983. She divorced him a year later, um... Again, in Haiti. So the divorce still wasn't considered legal. 
Um, I don't know if she w- had some kind of deal set up with Haiti where she could like go get her divorce punch card like every time she went and visited. Maybe she really liked Haiti. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I I, I want to know about her connections in Haiti. Like what? Who who do you know? Do you speak the language? Yeah, that one came out of left field. She just seems like a regular yeah. white lady, so I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> yeah. Like I know I know plenty of Haitians in Haiti who do not speak English, so I'm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what she was doing. Beats me. Interesting. (laughs) Anywho, in 1991, Jill married Gerald Box. He was a merchant in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. It's kind of funny that this case is coming back to Colorado, considering that's where Natalie and I met. Um, Steamboat Springs is super beautiful. It's a a huge skiing town. So Box was a graduate of Colorado University, go Buffs, and was a veteran of the Vietnam War. He enjoyed scuba diving, underwater photography, and flying. Um, So throughout this marriage, Jill was extremely manipulative towards Box, even going so far as to convince him that she was pregnant. This was impossible considering Jill had a hysterectomy a few years prior. Um, Box was really excited about getting the opportunity to be a father. Um, Jill had claimed that she wanted to have her baby at home, so I don't know if she was like, stuffing her stomach making it look like she was pregnant maybe eating a lot of donuts (laughs) but she traveled back to louisiana and she told everyone that she gave birth but the child had died shortly after a box began to grow pretty suspicious of his wife doubting that she was ever pregnant in the first place and he did some digging and he found out that she was still legally married to Carl Steely. So he had their marriage annulled since their marriage wasn't legal in the first place and she had already been married to someone else. Jill quickly moved on to Michael Backus, a telephone company maintenance repairman. They had a pretty short relationship. There were rumors that they were married, but there's no legal documentation to back this up. Um, going back to Gerald Boggs, so he had Leanne when, and I had to look this up because I had no idea what it was, still not 100% sure I'm saying it right, but it's when legally someone is granted possession of another person's property until their debt is discharged. Um, so he had a hold on Jill's bed and breakfast lodge in a ski resort, and it was valued at $1 million. Uh, so Jill was not happy about this arrangement. And a few days before a trial of a lawsuit charging Jill for bigamy and extortion, Boggs was found dead in his home in Steamboat Springs. He was shot with a 22 caliber pistol. Now, Jill claimed that she was camping in Fort Collins with Michael Backus at the time of the murder. So that was her boyfriend slash maybe husband. Um, But the evidence was not looking so great for Jill and Bacchus. So witnesses saw Jill and Bacchus near Boggs' home the day that he was killed and also during the funeral. Jill reportedly was wearing a disguise that was a fake black mustache, and she was also (laughs) driving a red sports car, which would not be my disguise of choice if I was trying to fly under the radar, and I was also a woman. So... Do we know, like, was she, how committed was she to this disguise? Was she just her normal self and a mustache? Was she wearing a hat? Like, did, like, what else was there beyond this mustache if there was more? In my mind, she's wearing 
a trench coat with like a hat and like sunglasses and a mustache with her hair tied back but there's nothing <laughs> to back that up that's just like how i picture it in my mind <laughs> i don't know i don't know if she went all out i don't know if she was like wearing a dress and a mustache because i you know wouldn't think twice if i just saw a woman in like regular clothes but if i saw a woman who just had like a fake black mustache or you know like those glasses they used to have when we were kids that were like plastic with the giant nose yeah and like the the plastic mustache yeah. maybe she had one of those i don't know and then the whole red sports car thing too it's kind of flashy you would think you would go for a more low-key car i don't know at least park the sports car a few blocks away so no one sees it yeah also, where did the red sports car come from? I don't know. She was a rich lady. She liked to... She was flashy. She liked to show off her, her money. But, either way, was not exactly the smartest criminal around. Um, so, during this time, too, Michael Backus's co-worker came forward later. His name was Troy. He said that Michael offered him $7,500 to kill Boggs. And apparently Jill and Bacchus were trying to convince multiple friends to do this. Um, and eventually when Bacchus was arrested, Troy was like, hey, remember when you offered me money to kill this guy? Bacchus said, I was hoping that you would forget that because that was one of the things that would link him to this crime. $7,500 does not seem like enough, you know, even back, yeah. what, 50, 40 hmm. years ago? Not enough. Not worth it. Yeah. But Jill had fled to Mexico after Box was killed, and she wrote letters to her son confessing everything that had happened. So they had the information they needed to get her. And she eventually, um, we don't know if she ran out of money or wanted to pick up some of her belongings, but she came back to the United States, returned to her son's home in Greeley. So in 1993, Jill and Bacchus were arrested. And in 1995, they were convicted of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Huh. That is the story of Jill. But wait, there's more. Um... So while in jail, Jill posted on a website that she was looking for a husband. Oh, gosh. The correctional facility was like, no, shut it down. Uh, so that went away for a little while. And then a few months later, she created a website saying, you want a U.S. citizenship? Marry an inmate. <laughs> Her website was called cyberspace-inmates.com. I tried to visit this website. Nothing happened. But uh, that is incredible. She was still, you know, playing her tricks, even from jail. You just kind of question a little bit, like, what was the goal? I'm not sure. <laughs> was she planning on getting out of jail anytime soon? Did she need some money for her commissary? I don't know. <laughs> it could be a combination of many things. Maybe she just wanted some companionship. She wanted a buddy to write her letters. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I... I do remember, as I was reading through my sources, I think in her early years, she had been a model. She was described as being really attractive. But then by the time that she ended up being arrested, uh, sources were describing her as like stocky and not very attractive looking. And she had, you know, fallen 
quite far since her modeling days, which is pretty rude. Yeah. You know, let's not make comments about women's appearances, although she did murder some people. So, well, I mean, <laughs> not great either. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Maybe she was just looking for, you know, someone to satisfy her ego. She had convinced so many men before to marry her that maybe she was looking for that attention. Who knows? Um, and so her one ex-husband, Carl Steely, did say, if you were ever to meet her and talk to her, you'd think she was just the greatest person you'd ever met. Why would all these people marry her if she weren't that way? So it seems like she was a pretty manipulative person that, you know, it's hard to imagine that someone could get married so many times without being able to. She was doing it to get what she wanted. She wanted money. She wanted this nice lifestyle. She wanted to be able to do whatever she wanted. And she accomplished that until she made some really bad choices later on. Yeah. And obviously there has to be some sort of draw to someone who can get married multiple times. I, you know, have... I've convinced one man to marry me, and I tell you, that was a lot of work. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, I'm still getting there. I'm still getting there. Um, just kidding. I'm not ready to get married yet, but it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a big commitment, and clearly there was a lot of legal things that got tied up because of her marriages and non-real marriages. So yeah, that's Jill's story for you. Not a great lady. Well, I mean, definitely not someone who made the best choices. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Is she still... I assume she's no longer with us. I think she might still be alive and she's still in jail. Really? Yeah. How old would someone be if they were born in 1943? I don't know, man. I mean, I was born in the 90s and sometimes I'm still amazed that I'm here. <laughs> True. I'm like, it's the 20s. It's weird. (laughs) It's so weird. Let's see. If someone was born in 1943, they're only 77 years old now. It's still a long time. I feel like you age faster in prison, but... (laughs) Maybe. Um, You also don't have the stresses of, you know, having 30 husbands. Or maybe she does have 30 husbands. I don't know. I don't know how well her website worked out for her. Yeah, you never know. (laughs) Wow. All right. (laughs) And so, one last question about Jill. Of course. What was her um, grand murder total? <laughs> it was two. Okay, just two. That's what I. That's what I thought. So I don't think she she quite hit the qualifications for serial killer. No, I, I don't think, think so. Technically, I don't think it's two. I think it has to be more than that. Mm-hmm. But maybe if she hadn't been caught, it might have turned into that. Yeah. All right. Well. <laughs> That leads me to my case, the story of Kelly Cochran. So Jason and Kelly Cochran uh, were married in 2002, and they were actually next-door neighbors growing up in Maryville, Indiana. After they got married for the first 10 years, Jason worked manual labor until he had either an accident or it was general, like, wear and tear or something that essentially just caused his back to give out. At that point, he just wasn't able to work anymore. So Kelly had to become primary breadwinner um, to support herself and her husband. Around that time, uh, they actually moved from Indiana to Michigan, specifically to Iron River, Michigan, because of Jason's back pain. They were drawn to Iron River because of its legalization of marijuana. 
In Iron River, Kelly started working at a factory that made parts for naval ships. That's where she met Christopher Reagan. He was 53 years old, and for reference, both Kelly and Jason were in their 30s. Chris was in a relationship with a school teacher named Terry O'Donnell, but despite the age difference between Chris and Kelly and the fact that they both were in relationships, they both kind of were drawn to each other. It seems like they both were really drawn to having a very active and social life, and so they did a lot of things together, um, despite any age differences or anything like that. All of their hanging out and socializing together obviously sparked some rumors among their co-workers, and there was a lot of gossip about them possibly being in some sort of relationship or having an affair. And Terry O'Donnell eventually later would tell reporters straight up, yes, the rumor was that Christopher was having an affair with Kelly. And despite Um, all of that. They kind of continued for a little while up until um, it looks like around 2014, mid to late 2014. Um, At that point, um, Chris and Terry started to end their relationship and Chris was actually planning on moving from Michigan to North Carolina. He had just accepted a job offer there. But in October of 2014, Chris sent a text message to Terry and basically saying, hey, like, let's get together for the holidays, Thanksgiving in particular. And that was actually the last text message that Terry ever received from Chris. Uh-oh. After not hearing from him for about 10 days, uh, Terry filed a missing persons report with the police department and they went and searched his home and his home was a complete wreck. Everything, like, things were thrown about. Um, apparently, according to Terry, that was not the way Chris lived his life he was a much more organized person he would have never left his house like that see it's kind of funny because my life would be the opposite like if you came to my house and things were in shambles you'd be like oh thank god she's okay but if you came and it was like spotlessly clean you'd be like all right she's missing (laughs) (laughs) and then his phone his phone was also missing so his phone was missing yeah yeah yeah. okay Um, and eventually they found his car and it was just outside of the town and inside of his car they found a sticky note and it had directions to an address in old caspian and that was an old like mining community that was kind of run down and it also just so happened to be where kelly and jason cochran lived so police drove out there obviously kind of following the breadcrumbs they drove out there and they talked to the cochrans and kelly said you know yeah of course i know chris we or sometimes in touch. I haven't heard from him in a while. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And according to the police, uh, they found that Kelly, you know, she didn't seem nervous or suspicious at all. Um, she seemed friendly and outgoing. But Jason, on the other hand, seemed to be a bit emotionless and he was off to the side in all of the interactions. Um, he, the police sergeant, um, Cindy Barrett, she still had her own suspicions, but she had nothing to go on. It was just like a weird feeling that she had. Eventually, they spoke to Chris and uh, Kelly's co-workers, and they told the police about their, their, you know, the suspicions that Kelly and Chris were having an affair. Obviously, since they had just spoken to Kelly, that was a bit of a red flag. Like, that never came up. That said, I still, I understand, you know. Yeah, you're not going to be broadcasting that to the world. You were having an affair. Maybe your husband doesn't know. You're not going to tell the police in front of your husband, you know, if you're not trying to, Mm -hmm. or if your husband does know and you're working through that, you're not trying to rip, you know, any band-aids. You never know. I, I can see reasons for not 
telling the police about the affair. Fair enough. But I, I at least would want to go back to the police later, maybe, and say, listen. Yeah. Like, if you don't make yourself look too bad. Exactly. Like, if you're kind of innocent, but you're like, okay, this might come up or whatever. Just just so you know, I totally get that. But of course... I actually just listened to a podcast where someone was wrongfully convicted because of this reason. Where oh, they, wow. they lied to the police about... Because there, there was an affair that was happening and they didn't have a chance to tell their partner yet. And then they ended up in jail for, like, a ridiculous amount of time. Well... So don't lie to the police about your affairs, people. Honesty is the best policy, guys. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so they bring in Kelly and Jason um, for an interview after finding out about Kelly and Chris's affair. And that's where um, Kelly tells the police that she actually did have an affair with Chris. However, according to her, she and Jason were in an open marriage. I don't think Jason knew that. <laughs> yeah. And according to her, she Jason was fine with it. However, their interview with Jason did not s- tell the same story. Jason um, was not in on any type of open marriage. Jason seemed to be pretty pissed off about Kelly's extramarital affairs, kind of implying that there might have been more than one, and Chris might not have been the first, possibly not the last, who knows, um, person that she was having an affair with. So, again, this was all happening in, like, October 2014. Around March um, of 2015, they searched the Cochran's home, and they didn't find any evidence or or anybody or anything like that that really pointed towards Chris having been there or a crime or anything having taken place. But they did find a the draft of a novel that Jason was writing. And in the book, he basically detailed going on killing sprees and, spe- and seeking revenge against a specific person. And the description of the person actually seemed to be pretty similar to the description of Chris Reagan. So just something to think about. Not looking good. Yeah. Soon after that, they left town and they moved to, um, in, they moved back to Indiana, um, this time to the town of Hobart. So in 2016, about a year later, Kelly called the police and she said that her husband wasn't breathing the technicians arrived and Kelly was like super frantic and not very helpful. Um, I can kind of see that in certain cases. If, you know, I find my husband laying on the ground and he's not breathing, I might be losing my mind a little bit. Um, And Uh so when they get there and they're checking Jason, that's when they realize, yep, he is dead. And the apparent cause at the time seemed to be a heroin overdose and people kind of made the connection well he had all this chronic back pain it was so bad that he wasn't able to work the the unfortunate story for a lot of people in america right now is this cycle of pain to opioid Mm -hmm. to heroin and so it's not it's not an unbelievable story however his friend walter was like no 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 not the Jason that I know. Um, Basically, he was like, this guy wouldn't do anything harder than marijuana. There's no way that he was doing, like, doing heroin. Well, right. He moved to Michigan for free, not free, for legal marijuana, medical marijuana in the first place. So it sounds like he was being 
mindful from the start about not necessarily wanting to go the route yeah, of opioids. that's very true. And then eventually the medical examiner took took a look at Jason, did the autopsy and all that, and was like, yeah, there's there was a bunch of drugs in his system, definitely. But he definitely died of asphyxiation from strangulation. Ooh. And so um, the Lake County prosecutor and the um, Hobart medical examiner ruled that the death was a, that the cause of death was homicide. And at that point, the police were constantly interviewing Kelly. But a few months later in April, she actually left. She just left town and texted the investigators that she was on the West Coast. Why is she in a text relationship with police officers? I don't know. How do you even get a police person's phone number? Yeah, I don't know. Uh-huh. And so um, at this point, she's a suspect in two deaths, and they issue warrants for her arrest. Eventually, they were able to track her to her cousin's home in Kentucky, and so they arrested her um, in, on April 28th in 2016. So once she was arrested, she started telling everything that they wanted to know. Basically, she said that she, when she and Jason first got married in 2002, they had an agreement that if either of them ever cheated, the person who was cheated on would murder the person with whom their partner cheated. You know, just the standard prenup agreement where you write in the the murder clause, you know, typical... Typical. Yes. And it also kind of seems like one of those things that you would say kind of in jest. Like I've talked to my husband and I've been like, no, actually, I've never said anything like that to my husband. (laughs) But um, I mean, you are a normal person. So that that makes sense. But I could also see it like, oh, yeah, if you cheat on me, I'd totally kill. Like I could see it like just being a flippant like remark. And so I'm curious if... You know, like, well, at first when I heard that, I'm like, did somebody take this, take a joke too seriously? Or is she just fabricating this whole thing? Um, I don't know. And so, uh, so according to her, Jason was incredibly angry about her affair with Chris. And so she, so she says that she was forced by Jason to lure Chris to their home and have sex with him. And once, once they were having sex, Jason walked in and shot Chris point blank in the head. That's For me, that whole scenario just seems gross. insane. Number one, <laughs> I don't see the point of them, like the sex. Like if Jason was going to kill. Unless it's like some creepy kind of fantasy. Yeah, uh, or maybe it was to get Jason angry enough to go through with it. But I don't know. Like for me, the sex part is a little weird. And then her being okay with that aspect of it, knowing that the murder was going to happen, like, what, now blood is going to be all over you? I don't know. Right, that would just be difficult to clean up, and especially, you know, the police came by later. The evidence from that, I would imagine, are you going to rip up the carpet on your floor, get a new mattress, do all that? That's, yeah, seems like a lot of of work to take on. On top of being totally horrible and cruel. Exactly. But according to her, that's what happened. And then Jason proceeded to dismember Chris's body. Yeah. And then Kelly decided to bring the police to where Chris's body was buried. And they only found a skull. I don't like that. And so according to Kelly, because of because of Jason murdering Chris, that is why she murdered Jason. Right. Or is she lying? And did she kill both of them herself? Yeah. I mean, that is a definitely valid question, and 
I personally would not be surprised if that was actually the case. And so, um, in 2017, she went on trial for her part in Chris's, um, murder and she was found, found guilty on five counts, including five degree murder. And she was sentenced to life in prison. Then instead of going through another trial for her husband's murder, she um, just pleaded guilty and she was sentenced to an additional 65 years. So she's currently serving life plus 65. Um, However, it was then that things take an even more interesting twist at that point um once in prison like she's just kind of talking and she has nothing to lose yeah right basically she's like my whole life is over um so she just starts saying all sorts of things including that the that chris was not the first person that they had killed according to her that they had killed uh, like upwards of like nine people and then the even the the twistier twist on this twist is that according to um kelly's brother her family and friends believe that that jason and kelly had been killing people for quite some time and not only that feeding them to their friends and family in the form of like hamburger oh no so um that's so gross from what I've read, there's a few different kind of retellings of how, like, this actually works. Some things that I've read have said, like, it was only Chris that was fed to people. I've read that others were fed, in addition to Chris, were fed to her family and friends. So there's some variations in exactly what is the truth. Uh, but yes, her family and friends do believe that she and possibly jason as well Mm. dismembered ground up some bodies and served them in the form of hamburger yeah i feel like this is why you should never accept hamburgers from like a stranger that's like that's always the go-to like format for serving bodies apparently it's horrible (laughs) i you know i've always had a pretty like strict rule of just not eating just anybody's food you know i've got to like really know you and know your soul good for you (laughs) yeah so um that is the case of kelly cochran that's not cool man definitely see some psychopathy or some sociopathy sociopathy yeah she crazy psychopath versus sociopath psychopath versus sociopath from from what i've read they're they generally mean the same thing and um i think all there's just no concrete definition and obviously neither of these terms exist within the the dsm which is the manual of of you know classification of all mental disorders so neither of those are in there right now there's the antisocial personality disorder that's what's generally used to cover what we would call psychopaths now but psychopaths is generally the term that people use so not all psychopaths or or sociopaths are murderers you know um I did a a little bit of extra research. We were talking before about the differences between male and female psychopaths. And so I was curious, you know, what, what are the differences there? What are, what are some things that, you know, obviously we know a lot about, about male psychopaths. Um, So there was, there's been a ton of research on male psychopaths and most people assume that this information would be generalizable to women. This is true for some of the characteristics, but not for all of them. So women psychopaths are actually less likely to be violent. 
which we didn't necessarily see in our cases today, but um, males are also more likely to be motivated by sex or domination over others, whereas women are more driven by profit. So this seemed to be the case in in with Jill. You know, she was marrying all these people. She was just trying to get money, get what she wanted, get status, and then move on. And the times that she did end up committing murder were, you know, to to just get her to financially gain. But um, another interesting thing was that men serial killers are more likely to kill strangers, whereas women serial killers are more likely to kill family members or people they know. And like I was saying, Jill didn't meet the qualifications for a serial killer, and not all psychopaths end up being serial killers, but that was definitely the case, it it seemed like, with Kelly. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, according to according to the murders that we do know or based on the murders that we do know they were obviously people that were very close to her um Mm -hmm. i almost feel like it in a weird way it kind of like there there were some sexual kind of um drivers there just given you know like it was her lover who was murdered while she was having sex with him and she helped the the weird the the weird almost kind of sexual thing though is if she did feed these people to others there's, there's an i, I hate that so i'm um, we'll just getting the heebie-jeebies yeah well i'll just say the cannibalism aspect um okay there's something about that if you think about rape and i'm not you know generalizing or making light of you know um sexual assault or anything like that but they're Mm -hmm. like you know just kind of the basic aspects of it are someone forcibly doing something to someone else's body um like right it's that domination aspect there's something very bizarre there (laughs) yeah um Well, I got that information from Psychology Today. We hope to include more information, you know, as we wrap up our cases. Um, Not all of our cases are going to be as dark as the ones that we covered today. Um, But it's just, it's interesting thinking about the differences between a a man's motivation for murder versus a woman's. Um, Yeah. We hope to further explore this. So we will go ahead and wrap things up today. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subjects matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Tech Line by texting HOME to 741741. Uh, They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show and join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast. (laughs) 